0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, Joe Biden announced that the theme of his re-election campaign will be that the Democrats are the party of freedom. But Republicans claim that they are the defenders of freedom. So who is right? Eric Foner has the answer later in the show. But first, what is to be done about Clarence Thomas? Don Guttenplan has the proposal in a minute it's time to impeach supreme court justice clarence thomas for that we turn to d.d guttenplan he's editor of the nation his books include american radical the life and times of if stone the nation a biography and the next republic the rise of a new radical majority we reached him today at the magazine offices in manhattan don welcome back
1: great to be back john
0: Well, we're speaking on Tuesday as the Senate Judiciary Committee began hearings on Supreme Court ethics. I thought Supreme Court justices were appointed for life, but you point out in the nation that that's not what the Constitution says. Article three says judges, quote, shall hold their offices during good behavior, close quote, and you think Clarence Thomas's behavior has
1: not been good. Well, I mean, where to begin with Claire Thomas? Shall we begin with the fact that his wife was clearly an active plotter in efforts to overturn the 2020 election results? Shall we begin with the fact that he's gone on trips with a Texas billionaire, Harlan Crow, who was also on the board of the Club for Growth and other right wing groups, which have regularly filed amicus briefs with the Supreme Court. and that at least one of those trips, I think it was to Indonesia, would have cost in the neighborhood of half a million dollars if Jeannie and Clarence Thomas had paid their own way. Uh, there are plenty of places to begin, but yes, taking taking freebies from people who have business before the courts is certainly something that you would think ought to be frowned on.
0: <laughs> and the constitution has set up a procedure for removing justices and judges for bad behavior, impeachment. But has a Supreme Court justice ever been impeached?
1: Well, the answer to that is 15 federal judges have been impeached, including Supreme Court justices.
0: And were any of them removed from office after being impeached?
1: Eight of them have been removed because for people who've forgotten, and I don't know how you could have forgotten in the last four years in this country, but impeachment is like an indictment. It has to be voted on by the House, but you get to keep your job, as we saw in the case of Donald J. Trump, if the Senate fails to convict. So yes, for example, Robert Archbald in 1910, took his wife on a trip to Europe, paid for by Henry Cannon, and in fact, his wife's cousin, who also happened to be an officer of various railroad and coal companies that sometimes had business before the court. Archibald was impeached. His wife was called to testify in addition to himself. She testified that Cannon was her cousin, and the two families frequently enjoyed traveling together. The New York Times at the time thought Archibald gave a good account of himself, in which he admitted accepting the gifts, but denied that any impropriety was involved. The Senate, however, felt otherwise, and he was convicted and removed from office. The exact parallels with the Thomas's behavior don't take a lot of emphasizing.
0: Are you saying that Clarence Thomas... In effect, was bribed to change a vote. Seems to me, Clarence Thomas does what he wants to, and no one can influence him, including his colleagues.
1: I mean, you see this line of argument in the press, but it's what co- it's what fans of press digitation call misdirection. <laughs> it's entirely li- likely that Archbold also would have voted for whatever railroad company or coal company appeared before the court, because that's the way Supreme Court justices voted in those days. However, you are not allowed to accept gifts from people who have business before the court, even if you could show that the business that they have is something you'd already voted their way on 15 times before. And, you know, and even if the gift was just because they love the way you think and they want you to keep thinking that way, that's not the way we do things, that is corruption.
0: That's impeachable and not just for Supreme Court justice, city council members, school board members,
1: Exactly. So, you know, the argument that I was going to vote that way anyway is always a a classic piece of misdirection and is never relevant to the question of whether you are allowed to take money from somebody who has business before your court.
0: Now we get to the current political realities. Congress has the power to impeach Clarence Thomas and remove him from office, but it doesn't have the votes. Just to review, the impeachment process begins with the House Judiciary Committee holding hearings. Now Republicans control the House, they control the Judiciary Committee. It takes it would take 218 votes in the House to impeach a justice and send his case to the Senate for trial. It doesn't seem like there are 218 votes.
1: Now, there are lots of lots of pieces here. One is would the House conceivably impeach Clarence Thomas? And the answer to that is you don't know until you try. If Republicans wanna go on record as saying this kind of corruption is fine as long as our guys do it, then Democrats ought to give them that chance again and again and again. And also given the current balance of forces in the House and the fact that you've got you know, these uh, loose cannon pop, right-wing populists who might well decide this is where they wanna make Kevin McCarthy look bad, And we should, again, give them the opportunity to do that. So there's every reason to push for Democrats in the House to push for impeachment and for Democrats on the Judiciary Committee in the House particularly. The
0: Senate can take some actions on its own. Senate committees have power to oversee the court in some ways, and Senate, of course, is controlled by Democrats, and the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee is Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois. Last week, he invited Chief Justice John Roberts to testify at today's hearing, we're speaking on Tuesday, about Supreme Court ethics. Roberts declined the invitation, citing what he called separation of powers concerns and the importance of preserving judicial independence. What do you think of those reasons?
1: Well, I think they're bunk, but (laughs) they're plausible bunk. Some nation listeners may recall that back in the 1950s, there were two committees that were trying to root out communists in the federal government. There was a House committee, the House Committee on Un-American Activities. And there was a Senate committee, And the Senate committee, even though this was the House committee's main kind of bailiwick, the Senate committee under a fellow named Joseph McCarthy managed to make quite a lot of noise. So it's clear that if the Senate committee wants to use its subpoena power, wants to call witnesses before it, wants to swear them in under oath, and wants to take testimony under the penalty of perjury, it can go pretty far if it wants to. The question is do Democrats want to? Do they want to make a fight over this? Do they have the will to fight? And that is a question that I'm afraid the answer so far seems to be not so much. Well,
0: there is a bill, a bipartisan bill in the Senate now. Angus King of Maine and Republican Lisa Murkowski of Alaska have co-authored a bill that would require the Supreme Court to create its own code of conduct for justices and require the court to publish that code and appoint someone to hear complaints about potential violations, and it would mandate an annual report on such investigations and require that they make public actions taken by the court in response, so this is a bill that would require the court to impose an ethical code upon itself, because, as we've learned recently, the Supreme Court does not have a code of ethics. In, under this bill, Congress would not determine what that code could be or what the punishments should be. What do you think of that as a response to the Clarence Thomas case?
1: Uh, I think it's incredibly inadequate. You know, there, again, there are lots of pieces to that. First of all, there is a code of conduct for federal judici- for the federal judiciary, it's just not clear that it applies to the Supreme Court, but it also isn't clear that it doesn't apply to the Supreme Court. So, you know, one thing to do is to haul them up on charges of violating that code and see whether they wanna say it doesn't apply to us, we get to set our own rules. I would also at this point point you and our listeners to the many wonderful columns written by Ellie Mistal, who points out that this court is never going to fix itself in its current composition and neither is it fixable in its current composition by Congress. And that, you know, in order to get decisions that are more in line with what most people in this country actually want, you're going to have to change the composition of this court, probably by adding additional justices. Again, that's something that doesn't require a constitutional amendment, that is well within the power of The president, particularly if the Democratic Party control both houses of Congress in the next election, it's been done many times in our past. You know, the court started out with five justices. Here we are at nine. That's easy to do legislatively. It's just not easy to do politically. And again, as Ellie has pointed out, um, so I'm just quoting him, you can't solve a political problem through judicial method."
0: At the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, hearing on Supreme Court ethics on Tuesday, Republican Lindsey Graham argued that all this is happening now only because Trump's nominees created a right-wing supermajority on the court for the first time in, what, almost a century. And it's only because of the court's recent decisions that Democrats are talking now about impeaching a conservative justice. What do you say to that argument?
1: I say that there's a way in which he's absolutely right, that it's only because there's a right wing supermajority on the court that has thrown out precedent, that has overturned long standing individual rights, that the question of changing the composition of the court or impeachment has become so salient. But, you know, this is one of these things where the voices of moderation say well if the democrats change the court now then the republicans will change it later and this will launch a terrible tit-for-tat exchange, which will be bad for us and the answer to that is that you do not end attacks on our rights which have been committed by this court repeatedly in which if Clarence Thomas has its way, his way include things like gay marriage and you know other legislation by committing suicide. The answer to an attack on you is not a suicide pact. And that is, what, that is what Democrats who refuse to engage politically with what is indeed a political problem fail to understand. One last
0: thing. Clarence Thomas has actually commented on all this. He has said that he will be guided in the future by updated rules that clearly require justices to report private jet travel. Your comment?
1: Well, I love that. You know, let's put it this way. If you take a shoplifter and you catch him outside the store, and he says, in future, I will be guided by the rule that says you can't steal from this store, and now I'm going to go home, he'd get laughed at. particular suggestion that we should let him get away with it because he's promised to behave better in the future. There's another important uh,
0: obstacle here, uh, which is that the Senate Judiciary Committee has lost its Democratic majority because of the absence of California Senator Dianne Feinstein. What can be done about that?
1: She can be removed, uh, and she should be removed, forthwith. And what are the grounds for removing Dianne Feinstein? That she's unable to perform the duties of her office. And in this case, she's holding up the whole country's business. There are those who say that People like me who think she should be removed, as I called for in the editorial in The Nation that you're referencing, are doing so on sexist grounds. And those people have just as much merit as those who say that the call to impeach Clarence Thomas is done on racial ground. They both should be removed, which is what I argue in The Nation. And the Senate has the means to do it, even if not formally, because that may be a, a cumbersome process, but, Chuck Schumer just needs to take her aside and say, look, Diane, it's time for you to go, and, you know, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, but if we do it the hard way, it's not going to go well for you.
0: D.D. Guttenplan, he wrote about impeaching Clarence Thomas and removing Diane Feinstein for The Nation magazine. You can read his editorial at thenation.com. Don, thanks for talking with us today. Always a
1: pleasure, Jim. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.
2: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons.
0: When Joe Biden announced last week that he was running for reelection, nobody was surprised, but his announcement video did make clear what his central campaign theme would be. His opening words were, quote, freedom, personal freedom is fundamental to who we are as Americans, close quote. First, that may sound like a cliche, but in fact, the Republicans have made the concept of freedom the center of their politics for a long time now. For that story, we turn to Eric Foner. Of course, he taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. And he's the author of the book, The Story of American Freedom. We reached him today at home in Manhattan. Eric, welcome back
2: nice to be here
0: john when ron desantis delivered his state of the state address last year he declared that florida was the nation's freest state he used the word freedom more than half a dozen times and trump called his campaign tour last year the american freedom tour so we are hoping you can tell us who is right about freedom Republicans or Democrats? What is the real meaning of freedom in America?
2: Freedom is uh, the pretty, pretty much the central idea of American political culture, political language. The thing to understand about it, uh, even, even though many people think there's just one notion of freedom and they happen to have it, but uh, <laughs> there are no other ones worth considering. But freedom is always a contested idea. There are always multiple definitions of freedom uh, in the political atmosphere, and these things change over time. And in fact, the experience and the definition of freedom grows with the struggle of people who feel that they are being denied freedom to uh, enjoy it as they, uh, as they see fit. So um, nobody is right and nobody is wrong in this debate. Uh, that is to say that there are o- have always been these contested notions Uh, of freedom, and uh, they have changed over time, and they will continue to change over time.
0: So, the struggle to define its meaning, you say in your book, is a political contest. So let's look at some of the key political contests here. Uh, Let's start with the current Republican conception of freedom, which is individual freedom from government control resisting the government when it wants to take away your personal freedom the government tells you you have to wear a mask or get a vaccination the government threatens to take away your assault weapons the government wants to control your medical care we associate these ideas in recent past with the reagan revolution which of course won the white house in 1980 with a very distinctive version of freedom. What What is its history, the, this concept of the state as the enemy of freedom?
2: Well, this goes back all the way to um, the revolutionary era when uh, Americans uh, in large numbers rose up against what they considered to be a oppressive uh, British regime, a British government. You know, the Bill of Rights uh, were, were added to the Constitution, 1791, Uh, in order to restrain the federal government from interfering in our individual freedoms. One way of looking at this might be to go back to Sir Isaiah Berlin, not a uh, important figure in American political history, but he famously distinguished between negative freedom and positive freedom. Negative freedom is what you described, the notion of get the government off my back, that uh, freedom is the and the right to pretty much do whatever you want without, not only government shouldn't restrain you, but other people shouldn't restrain you either. Yes, Reagan, of course, articulated this very strongly coming after the 1960s, which had elevated other definitions of freedom. This is one definition of freedom. It is not the definition. It is not the only definition, but it has been very powerful in American life. You can trace it all the way back to John Winthrop the Puritan leader, and a famous uh, sermon he gave in the 1630s in colonial Massachusetts in which he, he distinguished between natural freedom and Christian freedom. Natural freedom is what we've just been talking about. Do whatever you want with no restraint. But for him, natural, that's nature. In other words, that's not even how human beings should operate. It's like uh, animals just pursuing their, you know, trying to get food or something like that. Uh, That's not freedom at all. That's really slavery to your own wants, your own desires, the inability to put any restraint on yourself. Whereas Christian freedom was voluntarily following a moral code. And uh, in other words, the restraint should come from within. And that idea has also been very prevalent in many parts of American history, that really it's the ability to restrain yourself, which is the essence of freedom
0: and then there's what should we call it the democrats idea of freedom it was articulated best most recently by democratic representative eric swalwell from the bay area of california who published a memorable tweet recently that read what's the democrats message Simple. We are the party of freedom. Freedom to make your own health care choices. Freedom from your fear of gun violence. Freedom to have your vote counted. Freedom for all. Where does that come from? That's
2: good. If I may digress for one minute, uh, but back when Hillary Clinton was running for president, some of my former students were writing speeches for her, and they came to see me one day in my office and we discussed what should Hillary say. And I said, my idea is that she should make a public you know, effort to reappropriate the idea of freedom, to take it from the conservatives, from the Republicans and say, no, Democrats have this idea of freedom, uh, which is not just do your own thing. It's uh, it goes back to the New Deal. It, it's based on per- security, personal security economic security. Roosevelt said in the 1930s, the necessitous person, that is the poor person, is not really free. Because you can talk about freedom as choice, but if you have no economic resources, you can't make any real choices. And uh, you don't have the ability to do that. So the democratic idea of freedom, and I hope that Biden sticks with this, because to me, it's a very effective argument, is that that freedom is the ability to take part in public life, the ability to have freedom from want, Roosevelt said, one of the four freedoms of World War II. If we help people get out of dire economic circumstances, we are actually increasing their freedom by a large amount. So then, of course, that goes back way before the New Deal. It goes back to the 19th century, to the labor movement, to the populists. Many uh, radical groups in American history have emphasized this notion of freedom from want as the real freedom.
0: And you mentioned very briefly that the 60s had a distinctive conception of freedom. Uh, freedom now was the, was the cry. And this is, of course, a mass movement in the streets. The strange thing about this is it ended up greatly expanding our laws about freedom, both in Supreme Court decisions and, and in congressional laws. How, how did that happen?
2: Well, it's true. The, 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 the 60s, I think, did transform Americans' ideas about freedom. Uh, do your own thing. You know, in a certain sense, there's a kind of funny overlap between the 60s social movements, particularly the student movements of don't listen to outside restraints. And then in the 70s and then 80s with Reagan, again, the idea of freedom being action without outside uh, pressure, outside restraint. What was new about freedom in the 1960s was that it was pushed into personal life, into private life. Freedom originally was either an economic concept or a political concept, the ability to vote, the ability to take part in government, but now it's personal, control over your own self, control over your own body through uh, women's ability to terminate pregnancies. The notion of freedom as a public good gets associated also with freedom as a private, personal possession. And that doesn't bode well for social movements, actually, because it's a totally personal thing. But that's then picked up by uh, Reagan. You know, the place, the site of freedom is the marketplace, the economic marketplace. That's where real choice exists. You can go to McDonald's or Burger King. That's
0: freedom. (laughs) So that this notion of personal choice as freedom
2: gets pushed into consumer society where freedom is just buying whatever you feel you can you, you want to acquire.
0: So Biden will campaign, it seems now anyway, arguing that the Republicans want to take away your freedom. They want to take away the freedom for women to control their own health care decisions. They want to take away the freedom to vote through restrictive uh, laws and gerrymandering. They want to take away your freedom to live without fear of being denied medical care by cutting back who's eligible. And of course, freedom to join a union and fight for higher wages. Am I leaving anything out here?
2: Many Americans seem to be, uh, have concluded that another key element of freedom is the ability to own a weapon. <laughs> to own a gun. Yes. And the Second Amendment is the essential definition of freedom. Everybody should be packing heat, and that would make us a truly free society. And anyone who wants to restrict in any way ownership of guns, the use of guns, is um, is an enemy of freedom. Uh, it would be interesting to know exactly when that became so central to right-wing ideology in this country. Uh, Reagan didn't talk much about gun ownership to my recollection. But today, of course, it's everywhere. And every single mass shooting that takes place does not seem to have any effect on this notion that only a gun is central to Americans' ideas of freedom. So um, we have a lot of ideas of freedom floating out there. And in a way, the 2024 election will be a clash of different visions of freedom, just as, for example, the 1964 presidential election. In his book, uh, The Making of the President, 1964, the journalist Theodore White, uh, who covered the whole campaign, um, said that what was going on in the presidential election was a battle between two ideals of freedom. One was the civil rights movement, with its cry, you know, freedom now. And it's freedom rides and it's freedom songs. The, the civil rights movement took the idea of freedom, which had been pretty much a Cold War shibboleth in the 1950s. And, uh, you know, we were the free world and anyone on our side out there was part of the free world. It could have been South Africa. It could be anybody, any dictatorship. The civil rights movement tr- totally transformed the idea of freedom into something much broader, When Martin Luther King ended his great speech at the Lincoln Memorial, free at last, free at last, he wasn't talking about owning a gun. He wasn't talking about paying low taxes or not having regulation of what you do. He was talking about freedom as a total transformation of black people's lives. And then on the other hand, in 64, you had the Goldwater Movement, which heightened this notion of freedom just being an individual possession uh, with no outside restraint whatsoever, which will lead eventually to Reagan and then up to whoever it is today, DeSantis. Isn't freedom in the title of DeSantis's book that he's flogging all over the country?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh,
2: I haven't read it yet, but uh, perhaps I won't at all. But, uh, freedom is always a contested idea. We'll see which ideal of freedom most Americans find most appealing.
0: Eric Foner, he wrote the book, The Story of American Freedom, newly relevant in this political year. Eric, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Yes, good to talk to you, John.
0: Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Renee Reynolds is our associate producer. Alan Minsky is our producer. Ludwig Hurtado is our executive producer. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Bhaskar Sunkara is president of The Nation. And Katrina Vandenhoevel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.